0: Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would impress upon us just how good it is to know you. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to live in ways that reflect your goodness and help us, Lord, in big decisions that would result in a self-sacrifice like the one that Judah is prepared to make in the text before us. And help us, Lord, also in the little choices that we make, whether or not to resist some temptation, whether or not to speak some mean or harsh word, whether or not to let our eyes linger for just another minute, Lord, help us in the small decisions to live like we believe that it's good to know you. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would have his way among us today. We pray that you would, that you would melt our hearts, that you would cause us to see the, the redeeming love that you have poured out on us in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to to love more deeply, to feel more strongly, and to give ourselves more freely, to trust you, even if it looks like we're giving up everything. Lord, we pray that you would do all these things and many others, so many that we can't even imagine them. We ask that you would do all this by your word, in the name of Christ, amen. Amen. We'll be looking this morning at Genesis chapter 44, so I would invite you to turn there in the scriptures with me. And as you're turning to Genesis uh, chapter 44, I want to put a few statements from Proverbs 10 before you that as I reflected on these this week with with my kids and my wife, it just struck me how fitting the first three statements, the first three verses of Proverbs 10 are to this whole story of Joseph that we've been reading. So as you turn to uh, Genesis 44, listen to what Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1 says. It says, A wise son makes a glad father. And I would just encourage you to, to as, we, as we listen to what Judah, and as we think about what Joseph do in Genesis 44, think of what a glad father Jacob must have been as as he got the report of the way that Joseph has orchestrated the salvation of the whole world through the the wise stewardship of the years of plenty, and then the way that Joseph orchestrated bringing about a full and complete repentance, even a self-sacrificial offering of himself on the part of Judah, and then to think of how Judah had loved his father and his brother Benjamin. And I think that, that Jacob, it, I mean, Jacob lived long before Solomon ever wrote Proverbs 10.1, but he really embodies this glad father brought about by a wise son. And then the verse goes on to say, "...but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother." And, of course, we can think of how those foolish sons of Jacob that sold Joseph into slavery, and then the way that Judah lived in chapter 38 with Tamar, and we can think about all the sorrow that those parents would have felt. And then the text goes on, Proverbs 10, 2 says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. And those brothers, they made some money on the sale of Joseph, didn't they? But I suspect that they they came to resent that money. They came to feel that it would be better if they didn't have that. That's just the way the Lord works. If we, if we gain treasures by wickedness, they don't profit us. And then it says, but righteousness delivers from death. Righteousness delivers from death. We're going to see righteousness in Genesis 44 deliver some people from death, and it is glorious. And it anticipates the way that the righteous one has delivered all of us who trust in him from death. And then finally, Proverbs 10.3, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. And it's remarkable that we're reading in this, in this Joseph story about this famine and yet, the Lord is not letting the righteous go hungry. He's made provision through Joseph, and he's making provision for Jacob and his family. And then it says, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. This is true. He thwarts the craving. The world was not set up to be a place where wicked people get to have their way, where they get to enjoy- indulge their pleasures. The world does not work that way. And so with those statements from Proverbs 10, 1 through 3 before us, I would invite you to look with me back at Genesis chapter 44. And as we've made our way to this point in the chapter, I've tried to point to ways that Joseph has been setting his brothers up and it's as though he has prepared the ground. And it's like he, he dug out a hole for this snare that he placed in the ground. And then he, he replaced the dirt and made it look like it hadn't been dug up. And then he covered it over with leaves. And, it, and everything about this trap is perfect. And now at this moment, in this, in this passage, Joseph is going to close the trap on his brothers. And, and what is going to be exposed is exactly what kind of men they have become. And, and it's, as though, it's as though, really, this whole story, uh, chapters 37 through 50, turns in these two chapters, 44 and 45, and if you, if you have one of these color-coded chiasms in your Bible, you'll notice, that there's some on the back table out there if you want to grab one on your way out, you'll notice that Genesis 44 and 45 are right in the center of this whole narrative that Moses is building for us. And... and um, uh, so this is very important. What happens right here in Genesis 44, and just briefly, what's going to what's going to play out? Just to summarize these these two chapters, Joseph is going going to close the trap on his brothers and bring about the final test for them. And I don't have it noted on this sheet, but what's going to happen in the in the very center of the whole thing is Judah is going to offer himself in place of his brother, out of love for his father. It, it's It may be the most remarkable passage in all the book of Genesis, what we're going to see in the second half of Genesis 44. It is absolutely beautiful. And then in chapter 45, Joseph, the one in the place of lordship, the one who reigns over all the land, second only to Pharaoh, is going to forgive his brothers. So what we're seeing right here is a profound anticipation of the gospel right here in Genesis 44 and 45. So we read here at the beginning of the chapter... Genesis 44.1, then he, this is Joseph, you remember they've just feasted with him and he has uh, lavishly provided and at the end of the previous chapter, they were merry with him. So they've, they've, they've probably partaken of intoxicating drinks and they are uh, a little bit uh, free. They're merry with their brother. And then he commanded the steward of his house, 44.1, fill the men's sacks with food. As much as they can carry. So they have brought this money down to buy grain. And, and for the second time now, Joseph is having that money restored to their sacks. And he's having as much uh, of, 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 of the food uh, as, can, as can be uh, placed in their sacks. Along with their money. And then verse 2. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest. Now... Joseph is setting his brothers up, and he's going to say some things in this chapter that, that are part of the setup and that don't necessarily correspond with truth. For instance, he's going to tell his brothers, who's going to have it reported to his brothers, that he uses that cup for divination. I don't think Joseph practices divination. I, I think that he, it's part of the ruse. It's part of the trap but he has an ultimately good motivation in making them think that he's just an ordinary Egyptian, not a worshiper of Yahweh. And yet, and yet, uh, so this cup that he's going to say he uses for di- divination is going to be placed in the mouth of the youngest's sack, his brother Benjamin, with his money for the grain. And he did, the steward, just as Joseph told him. And then verse 3, as soon as the morning was light the men were sent away with their donkeys. And I think that that should call to mind the way that uh, earlier in the previous chapter, they were afraid that they were going to be enslaved with their donkeys. And now they're being sent away with their donkeys. Verse four, they had gone only a short distance. Uh, I point that out because it's, it's one of many features in this passage that we'll see that show that often our greatest fears don't come to pass. What we fear most so often never happens, never materializes. So they were, they were afraid they were going to be enslaved with their donkeys. Now they're being sent away with their donkeys. And then verse 4, they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them. And Again, all of this is part of the setup. They've not done this. They have not repaid evil for good. They have not stolen from Joseph. Benjamin has not stolen the money, and they have... I'm sorry, Benjamin has not stolen the cup, and they have not stolen the money that is going to be in their sacks that they use to buy their grain. But the steward is instructed to say, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this, that's cup, that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination. You have done evil in doing this. Now, the reality is they haven't done this. But if we were to, if we were to render this a little bit less smoothly, when, um, when the steward makes that last uh, statement, you could translate this, you have caused evil by what you did which leaves it a little bit more open-ended. And it almost suggests that the evil that Joseph is really after convicting is not the the supposed theft of the money and the cup. It's what they did back in Genesis 37 when they sold Joseph into slavery. And and I think it's suggested here that that's really what they did, that Joseph is trying to close the trap on them and bring about their their full and complete repentance for. and he's also setting them up so that they'll have Benjamin in a scenario just like they had with Joseph. Because what's going to happen is he's going to say, no, I'll only take Benjamin. And, and, and it leaves them with the opportunity to go back to their father and say, there was nothing we could do. The one second in command to Pharaoh himself took him from us. How were we supposed to get him back? They could go back and say that to their father. And if they still feel about their father and about Benjamin, the way they felt about their father and about Joseph, that's what they'll do. Verse 6 When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? So they don't know that the money has been put back in the sack. And they don't know that the cup has been put in Benjamin's sack. And so they're astonished. How could you say such things to us? Why do you? What, what is... And then, then they're indignant. And they say, far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money that... Now, now they're exonerating themselves. They're trying to show their, iniments, their, their, sorry, their innocence. Behold the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks. We brought back to you from the land of Canaan. It's like they're saying, hey, this happened to us before. And we tried to restore the money. What are you talking about? How then, continuing there in verse 8, could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? How could we do that? They haven't done it, but they did. They did profit monetarily back in Genesis 37. Now, I think that uh, there's sort of a, in verse 9, there's a kind of cautionary example that's given to us that that um, reveals the brother's um, finitude. They're not omniscient, they don't know what's happened. They're not aware of, of all the circumstances, and yet they're gonna talk like they know fully and completely that their innocence is going to be demonstrated. And so they say in verse nine, I think foolishly, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. So this is how insistent they are that they are innocent. And it never crosses their mind that they were innocent before and that money was in their sacks. They should have learned from that experience, right? That sometimes things happen to you that that you're not necessarily responsible for, but that you can be held guilty for. But they're, they're, they're indignant and insistent. Whoever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. You notice that word servant occurs twice there if I counted rightly, and I may have missed some, there are at least 14 instances in this chapter where they essentially say, we are Joseph's servants. And it's as though, you remember those those dreams where they're bowing down to Joseph, and it's now as though they're saying, yeah, we're willingly his servants. We'll bow down before him. He's Lord over us. So so there are these, these twists and turns that are being unfolded in the narrative. Verse 10, he said... The steward said to them, let it be as you say, he who is found with it, that's the, that's the part he's picking up on, shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. So they had said, whoever's found with it, put him to death. And the steward says, no, we're not going to put him to death. He's just going to be my servant. Whoever's found with it, though, you, you, you brought that up. We'll run with that. Whoever's found with it, he'll be my, my servant. The rest of you will count as innocent. You can go home to Jacob. And you can tell Jacob that it wasn't your fault. Verse 11. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground. And each man opened his sack. And he searched, the steward's searches, beginning with the oldest eldest, and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Now, I wonder if... You would reflect for a moment on how you've reacted when somebody that you don't like is suddenly exposed. I, I know from my own experience of this, that there can be a kind of elation. There can be a kind of exaltation. Got what he was coming, get what he had coming to him. I'm glad to see him humbled. And and if these brothers, if their hearts are still resentful of the way that. Jacob has shown favoritism to Benjamin. And then they go down to Egypt, and the Lord of all the land gives five times as much food to Benjamin and pronounces a blessing over Benjamin. And he just keeps being treated more favorably and more positively than we are. And now the cup is found in his sack. And and yet they don't rejoice, they don't exult over the downfall of this one that they resent. No. Look what happens in verse 12. Sorry, verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. They don't don't celebrate this and say, take him. We'll go back to our father in the land of Canaan. We're so glad to be done with him, glad not to have to be around him anymore. We're we're finally relieved of this problem. No. No. They tear their clothes, and then they load up their donkeys to return to the city to try to liberate their brother, who I think they understand has been falsely accused. Where does this come from? I think this comes from a a forgiving love that ultimately flows from what we've, we've seen in previous chapters, where because of the way that Joseph has put them in these situations, they've come to a place where... They, they've said things like, God has found out our guilt. Back in 42-21, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And so what, what's happened to them is Joseph has, has brought to bear the necessary consequence, the penalty, the righteous standard on their behavior. And it has exposed to them the evil and the sinfulness of their hearts, and I think they're repentant. And I think growing out of their experience of repentance and forgiveness, they now don't resent this brother, even though he has been treated with such favoritism. There's also... A connection back to chapter 37, in the fact that back in chapter 37, when they send the robe dipped in blood uh, to, jo- to to Jacob in in 37:32, he identifies it, and then in, ver- in verse 34, Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned, mourned for his son many days. So Jacob tore his clothes over over Joseph and now the brothers are tearing their clothes over Benjamin. And what we're seeing here is this transformation that has taken place in the lives of these men. Verse 14, we, we, we begin to transition now to the part of the narrative where Judah is going to intercede. So if you wanna sort of think of this chapter in two parts, in the first part, We have Joseph closing the trap on his brothers. And then in the second part, Judah is going to intercede for his brother Benjamin. So verse 14, notice how it it brings Judah forward. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. So once again, the dreams are being fulfilled from Genesis 37. Dreams that Joseph had of his brothers bowing down uh, before him. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? So again, Joseph is saying things that are part of the ruse, that have an ultimately good purpose, trying to bring about the full repentance of his brothers, trying to ensure the protection of Benjamin. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? Notice how this this idea of clearing themselves picks up the notion of being innocent back up in verse 10. The rest of you shall be innocent. How can we clear ourselves? And then Judah says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now, I don't think that Judah here is confessing to a crime that they actually didn't commit, stealing the money, Benjamin taking the cup, I think Judah has in mind what they did to Joseph. I think, I think Judah is acknowledging we were guilty because of what we did to our, our, father, our brother Joseph and our father Jacob. And God has, God has worked in the circumstances of our lives to bring about punishment upon us because of our lasting, remaining Guilt. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Notice again that word servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, he continues in verse 16. Both we and also, and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. So Judah says, We'll all stay and serve with you. Now I think Judah is probably hoping that Joseph will say, Since you're willing to offer, since you're all willing to offer yourselves, I will forgive you all. I will forgive you all. Or we will look into the situation, we'll initiate an investigation, and and somehow we'll bring about uh, you being cleared. I, I think Judah is probably hoping for that. And Joseph, Joseph's not done. So Joseph says in verse 17, the same words that they had spoken back in verse 7, far be it from... Joseph says in verse 17, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Why does Joseph do this? Joseph does this because he's trying to determine where are you guys? Where are you in relationship to your father Jacob? Do you love Jacob? Or do you, do you resent the fact that he's shown favoritism to Benjamin? Do you love Jacob? Do you love Benjamin? Or do you resent the fact that he's the one who has been favored? And where they are in relationship to Jacob and Benjamin will also reveal where they are with reference to him because of the way that they treated him and for the reasons that they treated him that way. Now in what follows in verses 18 through 34... We have the longest speech in the book of Genesis. That alone is significant. The fact that that Moses gives so much time to what Judah says here, it's it's almost like he wants to wave the self-offering, self-sacrificial, love for father, love for brother that brings about forgiveness. He wants to wave that banner by making it the longest speech in the book. Not only is it the longest speech in the book, as I said a moment ago, this is centrally placed in, the, in the, the structure of the narrative of chapters 37 through 50. So this is at the very central turning point. This is the most important episode in the book. And, and what we have here is, is the turning point in the transition from what we saw of Judah in chapter 38, well, really chapters 37 and 38, in 37. He takes money for the sale of his own brother into slavery. In chapter 38, he uses his own daughter-in-law as a prostitute. And then, in chapter 44, he does what I think is maybe the most Christ-like thing in the whole book of Genesis. And this this is building toward what we're going to see in Genesis 49, 8 through 12, where Jacob is going to pronounce a blessing over Judah that is going to be fulfilled in Jesus when Christ comes, the, the Messiah, the future king from the people of Israel. So it's as though Judah goes from the lowest of the low to being at the, in the highest of the high places of honor in terms of what a mortal human being can experience. And what gets him there is Christ-like self-sacrificial offering of himself in place of his brother. So there's a huge change here from chapter 38 on the way to the blessing in chapter 49. And as we begin, I just want to point out here that as we go through here, the, I think it's correct that Judah is going to refer to his father Jacob 14 times. So over and over again, he is going to refer to his father. And, and it seems... That what's really driving what Judah does here is love for his father. Which I think indicates that Judah probably really would like to have the favor of his father. So, I would encourage you to put yourself in Judah's place. Judah loves his father. It seems, I think probably, desperately wants his father's approval longs to have his father show the kind of honor to him that he showed to Joseph and Benjamin and probably realizes he's never going to look at me the way he looks at them. He's never going to treat me the way he treated Joseph. He's never going to treat me the way that he treated Benjamin. And he loves him like this anyway. It, It is a supernatural, miraculous love that Judah demonstrates here. So verse 18, then Judah went up to him. Uh, The the verb drew near here is used here. It's the same verb that's going to be used in 45.4 when Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Draw near to me. Judah drew near. And um, it, it makes me think of those passages in, uh, the book of Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews exhorts his audience to draw near with confidence because of Christ, ultimately. Judah, went, Judah drew near and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Uh, a lot of this language, uh, let your ear hear my words, it's, it's almost anticipatory of the way the Psalms are going to talk. It it, it really, it captures the way that Joseph is in this exalted position and Judah recognizes his authority. Judah recognizes that his life and his brother's lives and, and Benjamin's life in particular are at the mercy of Joseph. Joseph is in control. Oh my Lord. Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. Judah is completely submitted to Joseph here. And then what he does is he rehearses their interactions that they've had. Verse 19, My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother. The child of his old age, which in the book of Genesis, Isaac was referred to as the child of, of Abraham's old age. So uh, we're, we're getting uh, the, the interconnectedness of the book here for Benjamin to be referred to as the child of, of Jacob's old age. A child of his old age, continue to, in verse 20, his brother is dead, and he alone... Is left, And we talked last week about how Jacob has these, these 10 sons, 11 sons. And yet Benjamin is the one that Jacob is going to talk about as though he alone is left. And it is so ingrained in their experience that Judah can say, he alone is left. And, and this just brings out, I think, the way, that, the way that Judah would like to be favored. And yet he's ready to acknowledge Benjamin is the favored one. He alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. He doesn't feel that way about any of us. We came before. There was no problem with us leaving verse 23 then you said to your servants unless your youngest brother comes down with you you shall not see my face again and now what judah is going to do is he's going to repeat these facts all these facts are going to get repeated again and and what what is coming out i think is judah's understanding of his father you know so so often if we understand why someone does what they do, or why someone feels the way they feel, it makes us easier to deal with the, way that they, with the way that they behave, if we understand them. And I suspect that as the years have gone by, and as Judah reflected on his own transgression with Tamar, remember that, that great moment when he says, she is more righteous than I, as Judah reflected on his own sin, and then he looks at his father, and, he, and he, as he begins to probably, I think, uh, think about why is it that he favors Joseph and Benjamin? He probably comes to realize, or here's the story, well, Rachel is the one that Jacob wanted to marry. He didn't even want to marry Leah. That was never even part of the deal. He sort of got stuck with Leah. And, and see, what's happening here is, I suspect, if this is the way it played out, Judah is getting outside himself, and he's thinking about Jacob. And he comes to understand Jacob. And I think that understanding, combined with his own experience of repentance and God's mercy and forgiveness, that understanding brings him to a place where, in spite of the way his father treats him, he loves him. I've got a friend in my life. I'm confident. I know know this man. He is deeply humble. And he is wonderfully loving. But this guy can say some of the most arrogant, offensive, mean, and hurtful things that you could ever expect to come out of somebody's mouth. When he does that, you know what I do? You know what I feel? I laugh. (laughs) He's rude. He's arrogant. And I just kind of laugh because I love him. I know him. I know his heart. His heart is not to be rude and offensive and arrogant and proud and talk as though he's the smartest person in the world and the only one who understands these things. That's just the way he comes across. That's not really his heart. Because I understand him, because I know my own sin, I just laugh that behavior off. It's, 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 and I think that that's where Judah is with his father Jacob. He's able to love him. Verse 24, When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food. We said, We cannot go down if our youngest brother goes with we We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. Notice how Judah is taking the lead in all of this. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. I mean, it's like he's just turning the knife, you know. Well, your mother doesn't even count as my wife. And her bearing me, you guys, thats not even, I'm not even really interested in that. But Judah's now at a place where he knows his father, he loves his father, he understands his father. And so it he's able to deal with it. Verse 28, one left me, that's, that's Joseph, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And don't miss the irony here of Judah, the one who sold Joseph into slavery, now reporting to Joseph, Joseph's own death that they reported back to Jacob. And I have not seen him since, verse 29. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. And here we we come to the climax of of this speech and the climax of uh, this whole section of Genesis, And we see Judah's clear love for his father, his concern for his father. Verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. And and in this moment, it's not Judah's concern for his own reputation. It's not Judah's concern for his own life. It's Judah's concern for Jacob. And Judah's concern for Benjamin. Verse 32. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. And I I just want to invite you to think about everything that Judah is prepared to give up at this moment. Judah is prepared to, to give up his ability to return to his homeland, the land of Canaan, the land of promise. Judah is prepared to give up the fellowship that he enjoys with his ten brothers and all that they do together, all their operations, all of their, their shepherding. Judah is prepared to give up his relationship with Perez and Zerah, his sons by Tamar. Judah is prepared to surrender everything about his future, whatever ambitions he had, whatever projects He was working on whatever he was looking forward to on returning home. All of that. He's ready to say, my life is over. My life is over. And I will be your servant instead of the boy. Judah's ready to give up his relationship with his father. If, If Joseph takes him up on this, he will never see Jacob again. But having said that, let me also invite you to consider what Judah gains that he doesn't even know he's going to gain. Judah, because of this, is going to gain the words of Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. And then Jacob's going to start talking about a lion. Judah is a lion's cub. And then he's going to start Talking about the one to whom tribute belongs who comes from Judah. From whom the scepter will never depart. Judah gains the words of Revelation 5.5 that were read earlier in the service. Did did you catch that? When, When Jesus goes to the Father in Revelation 5 and takes from the one seated on the throne the scroll written on on front and behind, sealed with seven seals. He takes it and this angelic member of the heavenly court cries out with a loud voice, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered So that he can take the scroll and open its seal. Did you catch the name Judah in that announcement? That's what Judah gains. Judah gains not only this everlasting honor of being the one from whom the Christ comes. He gets the story of how he's a type of Christ written into the scriptures. This is here in the book for everyone to read forever. Temporary self-sacrifice leads to everlasting honor for Judah. I'm going to say that again. Temporary self-sacrifice leads to everlasting honor for Judah. And I think that, I mean, your name's not going to be written in the Bible, right? we got a closed canon. But the same is true in your life. Temporary self-sacrifice Be ready to lay down your life for people. I did a funeral on Thursday afternoon. And it was such a joy to talk about this woman who had loved everybody in her neighborhood so well. Given to the children. Loved her daughter. Temporary self-sacrifice. What are they going to say about you at your funeral? Temporary self-sacrifice. You want to be the kind of person, like Judah, ready to step forward and say, I'll take the trash out. I'll do the dishes, Mom. Oh, the dog pooped on the floor. I'll clean the poop up, Dad. I'll do that for you. I know you don't want to deal with this, Troy. I'll do this for you. You want to play the video game? Sure, I'll give you a turn. Yeah, this is the best toy. I want you to enjoy it. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. As I said, this this typifies the Lord Jesus and the way that he gave himself for us, love for his father, love for his brothers. And there's this great statement in this, letter written to a man named Diognetus by some unknown Christian that really, really encapsulates the love of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ for his people. It says, he did not hate us or reject us or bear a grudge against us. Instead, he was patient and forbearing. In his mercy, he took upon himself our sins He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? And in the outworking of this narrative, Judah said, how can we clear ourselves back in verse 16? How can we clear ourselves? Well, this is how. By Judah putting himself forward as the sacrifice in place of Benjamin. I mean, we're not going to get into it today, but in chapter 45, it clears them. Joseph fully and completely forgives his brothers and reveals himself to him. And and that, that just points to the righteousness that delivers from death on display in the life of Christ and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What else Diagnetus 10:3: What else but His righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person, while the righteousness of one should justify many. Sinners. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, I hope you're asking Judah's question How can we clear ourselves? How can we become innocent? And the good news that we have for you is by means of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, if you will repent of your sins and hope in Jesus, you will be cleared. You will be forgiven. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer, I want to encourage you to do to do four things in terms of your identity. So first, I would encourage you to identify with Jacob and and really pray that your children, your offspring, will be like Judah and Joseph. Self-sacrificial people, wise, righteous, loving people. Joseph makes good provision. He upholds the standard of righteousness. Judah offers himself. Pray for kids like that. Identify with Jacob and seek to be the glad father of the wise sons. Second, I would encourage you to identify with Joseph. Seek justice. Uphold the righteous standard. Don't just brush it under the rug and act like nothing's wrong. Do what you can to bring about people recognizing their guilt and their need. That's what Joseph is doing. And he's, and he's really shrewd about it. Really... He's really given a lot of thought to how he's going to put these guys in this situation. Identify, maybe this is most important for us, identify with Benjamin. We're the ones of whom the man of honor stepped forward and said, I'll stand in their place. We're Benjamin in this story when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is Judah, and all of us are Benjamin. Identify with Benjamin and rejoice. And then, finally, identify with Judah. Peter writes, right after that passage that we read as our call, I'm sorry, right before that passage that, passage that we read as our call to worship, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says this, For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And in context, when he says, to this you have been called, what he's talking about is suffering for doing good. And what Peter is saying is, Jesus suffered for doing good on your behalf. He left you an example so that you would suffer for doing good on behalf of others. So identify with Judah. And, and I would point out again, Judah really doesn't lose lose any of those things that he put at risk, does he? He gets to go home to his fathers. He continues to fellowship with his brothers. He returns to those projects that he was ambitious about. He gets to raise Perez and he doesn't lose any of that stuff. He was ready to put it all on the line, but he got it all back. It's so much like Abraham offering Isaac. In faith, He showed himself willing to give everything to the Lord, and the Lord brought his son down from the mountain alive. So often in our lives, that's the way it goes. When we come to the place where we're ready to say, whatever you want, Lord, wherever you want to send me, whatever you need me to do, the things that we were fearing that we might lose if we obeyed, if we trusted, it's like Jesus saying to Peter, no one who has left houses or mothers or lands for my sake and the kingdoms shall not receive back a hundredfold in this life and in the age to come eternal life let's pray together father we worship you and we praise you for the gospel we thank you lord that one greater than judah stood in our place that he stepped forward when the Romans came for him and said, if you seek me, take me and let these go free. And Lord, we praise you for this love that's on display that mere human beings can come to understand and can enact. And Lord, we pray that by faith, you would make us like Judah and thereby like Christ, that we would be ready to lay aside our own agenda, our own hopes, our own projects, our own ambitions, whatever it is that we fear to lose, and lay ourselves down. And we pray, Lord, that that as we do this, it would be clear that we're doing it because of Christ and what he did for us. We thank you for all these things in his name. Amen.